Breathing in, I know I am breathing in. Breathing out, I know I am breathing out. Breathing in, I notice my breath has become deeper. Breathing out, I notice my out-breath has become slower. Breathing in, I smile. Breathing out, I release. Breathing in, I dwell in the present moment. And breathing out, I feel it is a wonderful moment. One of the great teachers of the 20th and 21st centuries just died just over a week ago. Thich Nhat Hanh died at the age of 95. He was a renowned guide and teacher, a builder of communities across the world who left an abundance of teachings and students and teachers to continue the message that he offered. He was regarded as a living Buddha by some. So remarkable was his presence and so effective was his leadership. He was quiet and humble and known by the regard as Thai or teacher. So I want to offer a little bit of his life and his legacy because it is interwoven with ours in so many ways with our legacy for civil rights, for peace efforts around the world, and for the environmental movements as well. There is so much that he instructed and invited us into as a global experience and as a deeply personal one in the practice of mindfulness as well. So Thich Nhat Hanh was born in Vietnam in 1926 he felt a call to be a monk as a child. Um, and finally, after persistently asking his parents, he was able to enter the orders at the age of 16. And he's in one of the many lines of Zen Buddhism, informed by the practices of his country. He was, at the beginning, one monk among many. I mean, he didn't start out being this notable leader. And he served, and he taught, and he worked, and he sought out how to be of service in the world. He started to cultivate community in so many forms in his native country, and was part of the efforts to bring many different Buddhist traditions together. They were all kind of, many of them were separate, um, firmly separated from each other, having felt like they had the right, uh, the right truth or the right answer. And he was among the people who were trying to bring all of these people together. His core teachings um, include that of mindfulness in the tradition that stretches long into the past from teachings of Buddhism um, by focusing on the breath, focusing on the body in this present moment. But he also, it was not a mindfulness that simply uh, paid attention to the world but didn't interact with the world, it was an engaged Buddhism, as he is known to have phrased, an engaged movement that invited this practice of mindfulness to then be able to go out into the world still being mindful and also very much being of service, helping to relieve others from suffering. And 
The third element of his core teachings was that of interbeing. To keep taking the sense of mindfulness out, further out in concentric circles of our life, and recognize that we have uh, a relationship with the universe, with our environment, who is part of the ecology movements as well. He invited folks into a deeply personal, a deeply personal practice, knowing that it begins with simply the breath in each of us. But then he went, brought that out into the world from an ethical perspective, from the Plum Village website, Plum Village being the central community that he established in France. The Thai taught mindfulness within a context of ethics. With the energy of mindfulness comes mindful consumption, mindful relationships, and ethical livelihood. They say, you cannot separate mindfulness from mindful speaking, acting, working, and engaging with the world. And he was very much engaged with the world. He corresponded with and met the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s, in 1965 and then in 66. And when they met in 66, he made a case for Dr. King to make a statement against the Vietnam War. And this is, indeed, Dr. King followed through and made a public statement against the Vietnam War. And later, Dr. King, later that year, Dr. King uh, publicly nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Dr. King says, I do not personally know of anyone more worthy of this prize than this gentle monk from Vietnam. He is an apostle of peace and nonviolence. His ideas for peace, if applied, would build a monument to ecumenism, to world brotherhood, to humanity. Now, that same advocacy on Thich Nhat Hanh's part uh, resulted in his exile from Vietnam in 1966. He was touring the US and uh, including having a speaking engagement at Cornell University and made public statements against the war, uh, against the war in Vietnam. And as a result, because of asking for peace, he was deemed a communist and therefore a threat um, and not allowed to return to his native land. And so, and so, while this sudden exile came into being, he created new places, new communities, new homes in every country that he had a chance to live in. Uh, primarily, though, he lived in France and established Plum Village there, uh, which became the hub of his ministry and a place that, where he could expand his teachings under, under a unified approach to Buddhism. And he went on to publish uh, over a hundred books and became one of the great peacemakers and religious leaders of the 20th century and into the early, early 21st century. And he was speaking and traveling and welcoming people into practice and into relationship. And he was so also very good at speaking across different faith traditions as well as across different philosophies and understandings of the world. He was, in some ways, a universal translator of 
attention and engagement and ethical living. He was finally able to return to Vietnam in 2005 for his first visit there in 39 years. And that, I think, was much of a relief to him and so much joy that he could finally see his home again. And his work continued. And then in 2015, he had a major stroke that left him without the ability to speak. But his presence remained engaged and radiant. I think radiant is a really good way to describe his ongoing presence, even when he couldn't talk. And finally, in 2018, uh, Tai was able to return to his home country in Vietnam and live out the rest of his life. Uh, last year, uh, his health started to decline further, and finally, on January 22nd, 2022, he died uh, from the long-term complications of his stroke. He was 95. And the ceremonies and rituals that marked his passage went on for pretty much a whole week and just finished over this weekend. The world has been in mourning and in honoring and sharing his message. There was so much pageantry and so much care in the ritual recognition and disposal of his body. There was so much love and so much celebration around this moment. But the most precious image I thought was that of the box, the glass box that carried his robes, simply folded, pressed and folded with equal care. That those robes, small as a package as they were, represented his vows and his ministry and his dedication that he experienced for his entire life. I share um, so much of the work of Buddhism and reflection as I've gained in my past practice. And I, it has been such um, a joy, in essence, to go back into the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and be reminded about the simpleness of the practice and the depth of the practice as well. And also to give a little insight, you know, when I'm inviting us to be in the breath, I'm inviting us to do so in the moment individually, but recognizing that we do so as a community, that we do so as an interconnected web of all existence, that we together follow the breath in and out, and how much that can come, how much can come from that simple gesture, that simple attention to our lives. But I want to take it a little step further and tell another, one more story about Thich Nhat Hanh's ministry and how it was truly life-changing and how the core of the practice keeps, can, kept him and keep, kept his followers steady under very difficult circumstances. So, and this is also the application of the engaged Buddhism that he followed. So one of the pieces of Thai's work um, in the 1970s, following the Vietnam War, at the end of it, when the country was still uh, very, very troubled, was those, the people who were leaving Vietnam by boat in 1978. 
they were trying to escape what was going on in their country after the end of the war. And Tai and the people with him got into really good trouble, as the late John Lewis invited us all into doing. And he talks about this, that people were seeking refuge, um, seeking refuge from the difficulties of their country. And he went to Singapore uh, and ended up hearing about the difficulties of the people from his country. And he stayed on in Singapore longer than he was supposed to so that he could or organize a secret rescue operation because he knew that the people of Singapore didn't want him to do that. They were turning away the people who were crossing, uh, crossing the ocean in the boats. They would rather let them, uh, they would rather let these refugees perish than take them into their country. And Ty talks about that he had people from France and Holland and other countries that were helping him. They had hired a boat and were bringing medicine and water and food to the boats of these people filled with hundreds of people traveling uh, for the sake of their lives. And he was stressing that in this work, that meditation, pausing and taking the time for the meditation that was the core of the practice was not um, a luxury was not rest, if you would be. It was essential to staying sane in such a stressful situation as trying to save the lives of hundreds of people who are at risk on the ocean. He said, you know, in our office, we did sitting meditation every morning. We did sitting meditation in the evening because we needed that. We needed the spiritual dimension so we can be strong enough, compassionate enough to continue because it is so very difficult. And Ty talked about that incredible tension of waiting to see whether they could continue their work. The government at one point confiscated their passports and their visas and were ordering them to get out of the country in one moment because, um, because the government found out what they were doing and yet there were, there were a particular moment of having hundreds of people, multiple boats and, and almost a thousand people at risk on the ocean. And so there he was finding himself um, knowing that you had people who were hungry and miserable in the midst of a storm and that in the waters of Singapore and Malaysia, the government was wanting to just simply let these people die rather than let them come to safety. And so there, Tai says, he's talking about sitting on solid ground in his meditation, but also floating because his life was with the lives of these boat people and how difficult this was. And he says, if you don't practice sitting meditation, walking meditation, he said, you'd become insane. You cannot be yourself. You cannot help. And so in that moment, he and his group of people kept meditating, kept focusing and focusing and meditating walking and sitting and walking and sitting. He said, it was not a luxury. It was to be yourself. It was to find the way. And in the end, they came up with a solution and rushed to the powers that be to get approved to stay for just a little bit longer and finish those operations and save at least those people that were at immediate risk. 
and they were under terrible pressure from time and the restrictions of authorities. And they succeeded. But, he said, we went through this, and we know that if we didn't have the spiritual dimension that we would be lost. He said the, the phrases that they were using included, I have arrived, I'm home. I have arrived, I'm home. As part of the core of their practice, it reminded them to dwell in the present moment. We have already arrived, we are already home. We can breathe and just be. It is your practice. If you cannot be yourself, if you don't know how to handle your fear and your anger and despair, you are lost. You cannot help any others. You cannot help your people. You cannot help your country. One of the pieces I, I so admire about this practice of Buddhism is the acknowledgement of suffering, of our own feelings and those of others. It was not at all a denial of the depth of the emotions. It was not shutting that off, if you will. But it was simply that practice of following and paying attention to the immediate self to help manage and cultivate resilience. In the video of him telling the story about the work with the boat people, he was often walking in that practice of walking meditation. And there he was, again, modeling the walk and also visibly managing his feelings as he recalls such a struggle for life. And that he was doing this within the embrace of the community. I so appreciate the emotional honesty of that moment, of that, how hard that work was within the embrace of the circle of, of his sangha, of his community. And he would translate that, I think. I think this translates across so many situations in our lives and people in the world, that as we are in this moment, in our lives, in our particular struggles, as well as those of our national concerns and our global concerns. That reminder that of, of the value of arriving in ourselves, arriving home again, how much that is needed if we are to survive. He brought this practice of mindfulness and engagement in a way that was connecting so many people whether whatever their religious tradition, whatever their not religious tradition, it let people have access to themselves, their feelings, their compassion, their understanding of relationship. He talked about this a little bit in Living Buddha, Living Christ, and the power of this mindfulness as he was talking about it across Buddhist and Christian traditions. Where there is suffering, he said, mindfulness responds with the energy of compassion and understanding. And compassion is the, where the rivers of Christianity and Buddhism meet. In the Christian and Jewish traditions, he said, we learn to live in the presence of God. Our Buddhist equivalent is the practice of cultivating mindfulness, of living deeply every moment with the energy of the Holy Spirit. And if we change our daily lives, the way we think and speak and act, we begin to change the world. 
He said, this is what I discussed with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. many years ago, that the practice of mindfulness is not simply for hours of silent meditation, but is for every moment of the day. Other teachers, like St. Basil, have said it, it is possible to pray as we work. And in Vietnam, we invented engaged Buddhism. So we could continue the contemplative life amidst helping the victims of war. We work to relieve the suffering of others while trying to maintain our own mindfulness. And so, he says, the practice of loop, loop, looking deeply does not mean being inactive, we become very active with our understanding that nonviolence is not non-action. And it means that we act with love and compassion, living in such a way that a future will be possible for our children and their children. I invite us, I invite us to follow our breath as we have been instructed by this great teacher, that we follow our breath each of us to ourselves, we follow the breath to the heart, we follow the breath to compassion, and we follow the breath back out into the world, that we follow our breath in all times, in all moments, that we may, be, that we may remain connected with ourselves and to the entirety of life. So may it be. <laughs>